Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, glad that you've uh, come out to worship with us. As you uh, might be able to tell from our stage, uh, this evening is the kickoff of our Vacation Bible School. And uh, the uh, folks have put in a lot of work this week getting uh, this ready. And you'll notice the other rooms in the church that have been uh, decorated. Uh, as part of that, I think that we're going to be having uh, our life application group time in here. Is that correct? Did I understand that? Yeah. Uh, most of our groups or all of our groups are going to be staying in here. Um, if you didn't get that memo, uh, there's somebody to blame for that. It's not me. I don't know who it is. Uh, I can't tell you, but um, uh, if, you, if your class still wants to meet, there's some other areas that you could go meet in, but you're welcome to stay in here uh, for a, a larger group uh, life application time. Um, also, after our service this morning, um, our administration and facilities group would like you to look over a proposal uh, in getting another vehicle for our church. Um, we have a number of trips coming up in the next several weeks and are just... Uh, uh, really struggling with reliable transportation to um, take the number of people that we have. And so uh, this is not something that was on your agenda, but we'll, we'll deal with that when we get to the end of the service. I just wanted you to be aware and uh, not to rush off whenever we get done, uh, but we will need to, to talk a few minutes about that and try to get um, some of our transportation issues um, resolved. If you have your Bible, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 2. We come this morning to a passage that is probably titled in your Bible, and it's commonly known as the Transfiguration or the Transfiguration of Christ. And it is one of those unique uh, passages in the scripture that is uh, unlike a lot of the texts around it. We are accustomed in many ways to Jesus' teaching. We are accustomed to uh, the miracles that he has performed thus far as we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. But when we come to this passage known as the Transfiguration, it is a very different type of text. And we have this encounter that Jesus has there on the mountain after he has taken Peter, James, and John, his disciples, with them, and they go up to this mountain, and they have this encounter. And it's a very unique encounter. And the uniqueness of it, in some ways, makes it a little bit more difficult to communicate because we are not, from this, learning something that Jesus says necessarily to his disciples, some principle that we can take from him and apply to our life, and we're we're not seeing uh, even some of the uniqueness of the miracles that he performed, but we're seeing something that I think transcends those things, and is important for us as we understand uh, the uniqueness of Christ and we understand his character. So, as we go through our message this morning, I hope you'll think about those things. If you're able this morning, I invite you to stand with me in reverence to God's word. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2.
The Bible says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. You may be seated. When I look at this passage, I really struggle with how to, how to characterize what it is that Peter says to Jesus on top of the mountain. If your Bible's like mine and it may have some notes in it, mine has this reference in the, in the corner to the book of Nehemiah where the prophet Ezra is standing before the people and they are looking at the book of the law and they see that they have been neglecting this one particular feast that the book of the law required. And part of this feast, part of this celebration of what God had done in their life was to go out away from their home and build for them what your, your Bible may translate as booths or tents, to build for themselves this little temporary dwelling place. And in doing such, they would remember that time that they did not have a permanent dwelling in, in the land that God had promised them, but rather they kind of wandered around in the wilderness. And when I'm looking at this particular passage here, the my Bible has a little note that draws me back to Nehemiah to, to look at that and, and remember what the people of God had done when they rediscovered the book of the law and they began to understand the things that God required of them and they changed the things that they were doing so that they could be in line with what God had called them to do. But then, and that may seem correct if you read verse 5, but when you go to verse 6, you see that he doesn't know what to say. Now, of course, we understand that's never stopped Peter before. Not knowing what to say doesn't prevent Peter from saying something. And the Bible seems to indicate here that this is one of those times where he didn't really know what to say. He really probably should have stepped back and, and taken a moment to soak everything in that was happening around him. But instead, he, he feels it necessary to... Stumbling through, say to Jesus, Rabbi, 
It's good that we're here. Well, yeah. I mean, not everybody got to see this. Not even all the disciples got to see this. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty good that we're here. And then he says, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I don't think here we should ascribe some deep theological knowledge to Peter. I think Peter just has to say something. And in this moment, he doesn't know what to say. And so he just blurts something out. And as you and I all know, when we do that, a great majority of the time, it's not exactly what we should have said. It was not exactly the best thing to have said. Or many times, it's something that may just seem incoherent. And yet, that's what Peter does. And I want us to think about that this morning as we walk through this passage, as we look through what God is telling us here in His Word, that Peter is standing here as a man who is frightened. He's terrified, the English Standard Version says. They all are terrified at what they're seeing. And yet, they are in this place, on this mountain, witnessing this event exactly where Christ wants them to be. I think we have a misconception sometimes that the Christian life is going to be one that is not at times frightening, that is not at times scary. And yet, clearly, Peter, in the midst of Jesus, in his presence, there on this high mountain away from everyone else, is terrified. I think it can be a good lesson for us. Let's begin as we go in verse 2. And we see first in verses 2 and 3 that Jesus leads to the place that you need to be. Jesus leads to the place that you need to be. After six days, what is this six days from? Well, if you go back and look, and we understand that Mark not... Not everything is is bound tightly to a chronological order, but but here we seem to have the indication that this event happened six days after the things that have just previously happened. Well, what had just previously happened? If you look back into chapter 8, you see that we have Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. This great confession that we looked at last week where he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And then in doing this, Jesus reminds them that the Messiah has come to die in their place. We have the rebuke that Jesus gives when he says, Get behind me, Satan, because the things that Peter was dwelling on and thinking about were the things of man and not the things of of God. And so he calls on all of his disciples and he calls on the crowd to pick up their cross, to take it up, and to follow after him. He, he calls on them to be willing to lose their life for the sake of the gospel of Christ. And so, six days after this, when it's had time to settle in, to marinate, when they've had time to reflect on what Jesus had said to them and and their reaction to His words. He feels 
or he knows rather, because he's Jesus, he knows all, he knows that they are ready to take this next step. This next step in their relationship with him. This next step as they follow after him. And so he takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, those who who see the most with him, those who witness the most, those who are, are ready to go the furthest, those who he instills the most in. And he takes them up on this mountain by themselves. No one else is there. The four of them go up on top of this mountain. And in their midst... Jesus is transfigured. He is transformed. I don't know exactly what this is supposed to point them to. I don't know exactly what they are supposed to understand from this. I realize that until Christ dies on the cross and is raised from the dead, they do not fully understand this event. But on top of this mountain, Jesus goes from simply being in their presence in this physical world to also interacting with these two men who are from the spiritual world. The Bible says that his clothing becomes brilliantly white, whiter than anyone could have gotten it if they had bleached them on earth. They witnessed this. And as we find out in a few verses, it's shocking. But why? Why did Jesus lead them there? Why did Jesus take them to the top of this mountain? Why did he pick these particular people? Why did he pick just Peter, James, and John? Would not all of his disciples have benefited from this event? Friends, what we need to realize as we read this is that Jesus, when he is working with his disciples, he always leads his disciples where they need to be. He leads us where we need to go. This may have seemed like an out of character experience for these men. Why are we going away? Why are we leaving the disciples? Why is Jesus making us climb to the top of this mountain? That would have been my thought. I don't often climb to the top of mountains. Not really my thing. Not really something that I enjoy doing that much. And that's kind of been across the whole spectrum of my life. Now it's because it may induce a heart attack to climb to the top of a mountain. But there was a time when I was young and my feet felt better and I was much less of a person than I am now. And I still didn't much care for climbing to the top of the mountain. Why? Maybe the reason I'm more of a person now than I was then. These were fishermen. They weren't mountain climbers. And yet Jesus knows exactly where they need to be. He knows who needs to be with him. He knows who needs to have this experience. He knows who needs to be strengthened. It was Peter who had said, you are the Christ. And now Jesus is going to show him the implications of that statement by taking him to the top of this mountain. He's going to show him the reality of saying that Jesus is the Christ. He's going to show him the power that has been invested by God in the Messiah. That God did not send some weak 
Savior, but rather He sent His Son. He did not send some political leader, but rather He sends the Savior of the whole world. He does not send someone who can have a conversation with earthly kings, but rather He sends someone who can stand in the midst of Moses and Elijah and talk. That's what God has done in sending the Messiah. And so therefore, it was necessary that Peter, James, and John go with him to the top of this mountain to witness this. Friends, you need to understand that Jesus leads us where we need to go. And sometimes we don't like where we end up. Sometimes we don't like the things that God has us doing. Sometimes we don't understand, why would God bring me here? Why would God have me do this or have me do that? But friends, these disciples needed to be witness to this event. And so Jesus led them to the place that they needed to go. And friends, He does that for us as well. He leads us where we need to go. Not always where we want to go. Not always the place that we have planned. The place that we have developed in our mind as the appropriate place for us to serve Him. But rather, He leads us where we need to go. He leads us where we need to be. He puts us in the place that He wants us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us anywhere. He doesn't need us to accomplish His plan. He doesn't need us to accomplish His purposes. But rather, He has chosen us to serve Him. He has chosen us to be in His ministry, to be in His kingdom. And therefore, He leads us where He wants us to be. And the place that God wants us to be is the place that we need to be. But now look at the effect of being led The effect of being led to where Jesus wants us to be. In verse 5, I read this a moment ago. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses. One for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. What a bumbling response that is from Peter. We're going to make a tent for you. You've seen this amazing thing. Here's Jesus. His clothes have become brilliantly white. You see he is standing and talking with two men. And you're able to identify them clearly as Moses and Elijah. And here, three great men are standing there in your presence. And your response is to build Attempt. Think about your three favorite celebrities or the three most powerful politicians in the world. You see the pictures from the 1940s and you have Roosevelt and you have Churchill and you have Stalin, the three at the time most powerful men in the world and they're talking and they are, uh, they are figuring out their strategy for defeating the Nazis and you walk up to them and say, guys, could I build you a tent? That'd be strange, wouldn't it? 
Some of you went to a Christian concert at Carowinds yesterday, so pick out your three favorite artists. And you go up to them after the show, and they've, they've rocked it out, and you're just excited, and you say, guys, can I build you a tent? You know, they have you removed from the park for things like that, and rightly so. Even if we can figure out some vague reference to the Old Testament Feast of Booths, we're just trying to give Peter a little extra credit because the next verse says clearly he did not know what to say. He was not making some deep theological argument. He just didn't know what to say. He was terrified. He was scared. Friends, I think that would be our response to what he saw or worse. Some of you who like to talk may have been struck speechless. I think some of us would have gotten out of there quickly. This is too much. It's too far. I don't don't know what I'm seeing. This goes beyond my capacity to understand. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get away from whatever this is that's going on. Peter is terrified. They're all terrified. Friends, I want to tell you, sometimes following after Jesus is terrifying. Sometimes going to the place that Jesus has you to go is terrifying. It's scary. It's frightening. You don't want to do it. You're, you're worried about it. You, 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 you don't know how you're going to accomplish what he's called you to do. I speak often of my lack of desire to fly on airplanes. It's terrifying to get on an airplane. I just don't like it. They say it's the safest way to travel. That's all well and good. Except I've also seen the statistics of people that walk away from plane crashes. And that's not very good. Some of you could not dream of speaking in a public place. It just terrifies you. We're going to El Salvador again in a a few months, and one of the things they've asked my wife and I to do is to just lead a time with pastors and their wives. And I said, baby, I'll help you work on what you're going to say. And you should have seen the look that came over her face, because it's not her thing. Talking to people, it's not her thing. It's not her thing at all. See, it doesn't have to be terrifying as in, you know, we're concerned that we're going to, to die. We're concerned that we're going to face some terrible thing. There's just things that God is going to call us to do that is outside of our comfort. It's outside of what we're accustomed to. It's outside of our desires. It's outside of what we would do on our own. And he calls us to do that. He leads us to do that. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying when you've got to take a step of faith in things. It's terrifying when you've got to step out into the unknown. It's terrifying when you see something ahead of you and you have no control over it. You, know, you don't know what you're going to do about it. You don't know how you're going to fix it. It's terrifying when you commit to something and you don't know how you're going to make it happen. But it's what God's called you to do. It's what God's prepared you for. It's, God, it's what God has continued to prepare you for. See, going with Jesus can be terrifying. But we should go anyways. Because he leads us where he wants us to go. He leads us where we need to be. He leads us to do the things that he has for us. The things that are important for his kingdom. And we need to do them even when they're terrifying. As a matter of fact, some of them we need to do because they're terrifying. 
if you're never challenged in your Christian walk, are you really being obedient to what God has called you to do? If you're never challenged to do something different, if you're never challenged to expand yourself, if you're never challenged to do something that's beyond your capacity, then are you really living the life that God has called you to live in Christ? If everything is in your own power, everything is in your own terms, it's in your own purview, it's in the things that you desire, it's in the things that you enjoy, if everything that you ever do for the cause of the kingdom gives you great pleasure and causes you no fear, are you really living a life that's obedient to Christ? Because here these men, these fishermen who are used to being on the water, they're used to casting their nets, they're used to catching fish, they're called up to a mountain and they see something that scares them. They see something that causes them fear. If you look here, the word is not fear is in a holy reverence, it's terror. They're scared. And sometimes following Jesus is going to bring you to that point. Are you willing to follow after Him when that's the case? Are you willing to continue on after Him even when things are hard and difficult? I hope so because He gives us a solution to our fear. He gives a solution to Peter's fear. Peter doesn't know what to say. It's interesting. He doesn't know what to say. That's his problem. He doesn't know what to say, so he says something that's ridiculous. And look at God's response to his fear. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them as if they weren't scared enough. Now they're covered in a cloud. A voice came out of the cloud, so now it's worse. So we've got transfigured Jesus. We've got two guys who were dead. Uh, one which was carried into heaven in a chariot. If you go back and look at the Old Testament, now they're covered in a cloud, and now a voice is speaking out of the cloud. So there's not much more terrifying thing than what they're experiencing. And the voice came out of the cloud, and this is what the voice said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly... Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. God gives them the solution to their fear. In these verses, God gives them the solution to their fear. Listen to Jesus. Jesus has been transfigured. These two old guys have shown up. They're on top of a mountain. They're covered with a cloud, and a voice is speaking out of the cloud. And God says, Listen to Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And what happens? Everything disappears. Moses and Elijah, gone. The cloud, gone. The voice, gone. What's left? Jesus. See, if what we understand, if we look at this in the context of the whole of the Bible, if we look at it in the whole grand storyline of what God is doing, Moses came along and he brought forth the law and they were to listen to the law. And then Elijah came and he was the greatest of the prophets. 
And he brought a word from God, and the people were to listen to him. And then what had happened? God, before, he had surrounded a mountain with a cloud, and he had spoken out of it. There are all these voices that the people of God, as Jesus and Jesus' day, could listen to. All these voices that were coming at them. There were these religious voices, and there were these voices from their past, and all of these things. And God speaks very clearly, because the people in Moses, I mean, the people in Jesus' day were terrified. They hadn't heard from God in a long time. They wanted to listen. They wanted something. They wanted to hear God speak. And so for Peter, James, and John on this mountain, God speaks very clearly, and he says to them, listen to Jesus. See, I think it's not unnatural for us to have fear. Again, I think God leads us to some places that are quite terrifying. But the thing that calms our fears, the solution to our fear is to listen to Jesus. There's all kinds of voices that are wanting our attention. All kinds of voices that are telling us that we need to listen to them. All the things in this world that are telling us we need to listen to this and listen to that. We need to, to be pulled in this direction or that direction. We need to follow this way of thinking if we want to be considered smart or intellectual. We want to follow this way of thinking if we, if we want to uh, be cultured, if we want to be wise in the world's eyes. We need to listen to this voice and that voice. We need to follow this way of thinking or that. There's all kinds of voices pulling us in every direction. And it's easy for us, as we have been sent by God, to go into this world with a mission to share the good news of Christ with other people. It is easy for us to be terrified and caught off guard and, and go in the wrong direction. But the solution that God gives here for us is one that is quite simple. It's not easy... It's not an easy path to follow. It's not an easy route to go. But we are to listen to Christ. It is very simple. I think if we are honest with ourselves as parents, that's what we want of our children. We want to know in ourselves that we are a voice that they can listen to. And then obviously, as parents, we want them to listen to us. And some of you have children, and you have grandchildren, you have great-grandchildren, but I think if you're still honest with yourself, when your child sits down with you and asks for your advice, your thoughts, that you want them to listen to you. And in those times where they don't ask, you still want them to listen to you. When you know they're making a decision, you know they're considering something in their life, you want them to listen to you. As a parent, you want your child to listen because you have been down that path before. You have made those decisions before. You have lived more life than your children and you want them to listen There's so many things we want our children to listen to because we know 
We know if they make the wrong decision. Sometimes even very early on in their life, if they make the wrong decision, it may affect them from now on. So we want them to listen. God tells us here that with all these voices around, with all these things that are distracting the disciples in this great display of God's power and sovereignty, He wants them to understand that in all of that that is going on, they have the need to listen to the Savior. And when they do, everything else kind of steps aside. Everything else loses its importance. I wonder what a difference it would make in your life and in my life if we weighed everything by the voice of the Savior. If we weighed the decisions that we made in life, if we weighed the direction that we went, if we weighed the things that we did against the Savior, what difference would that make in our life? If you weighed the way that you spend your money against the Savior, what difference would that make? If you weighed the places that you would go in your life against the Savior, what decision would that make? If you weighed the relationships that you have against the Savior, what difference would that make? What difference? If we weighed the things of our life, and we're, we're supposed to be Christians, correct? We're supposed to be followers of Christ. So if we took the voice of the Savior, and that is what we used to decide the things that we did in our life, what difference would that make? How would your life look different now, or different in the future rather, than the way it looks now if you begun... To weigh your life against the voice of the Savior. Would it make a difference? Would your life look the same because that's what you already do? It's what you've already committed yourself to in your life is to to weigh your life against the voice of the Savior, your decisions against His voice and direction. Or would it look radically different because that has no bearing on the normal decisions that you make? What do we listen to? We listen to His voice. And what does His voice say? We see that in these last few verses. See, the solution to our fear is to listen to the Savior. And this is what the Savior says. And coming down the mountain, verse 9, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. One, he gives them the promise here in verse 9 that they should listen to the fact that Christ is going to die. The fact that he is going to die is that thing which will transform their understanding of the events that they have witnessed here and countless other events in the ministry of Christ. They'll weigh things differently after Christ has been Raised. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. It doesn't seem like it's 
that abstract, but apparently to them it was. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come. First restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. They did to him whatever they pleased, it's written of him. The interesting thing is we see that in the New Testament, there is only one man who takes on the role of the prophet in the same way, or at least in a similar manner, as we witnessed in the Old Testament. That man was John the Baptist. He had come before Jesus. He had come in preparation of the way. He had come preparing the way of the Lord and proclaiming. And so now, as he has come, as these scribes talk about, although they had not recognized John the Baptist in that role, he says, now it's time for the Son of Man. And the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer contempt. And then he'll be risen from the dead. What do we listen to that relieves our fear? We listen to the voice of the Savior. And what does the Savior proclaim to us? He proclaims to us the gospel. He proclaims to us the good news. That the Son of Man, the suffering servant, the Christ, the Messiah, must come, be treated cruelly, be killed, and rise from the dead. Friends, where do we find the hope when following after Jesus is terrifying? We find the hope in the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. We find hope in the fact that we have new life in Him, the one who should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. We have, we have witnessed that that has happened to Christ and that He has risen from the dead. And by rising from the dead, now we have hope, even when the things that God leads us to are terrifying. If you go and look after Christ is raised, you see these same three men, Peter, James, and John, the men who are terrified at this site on top of the mountain. They've received the Holy Spirit. And now they stand with boldness, not with fear. They stand with boldness and proclaim this good news that has come from Christ. This good news that though he suffered at the hands of the religious leaders and the Romans, even though he suffered brutally and was tried unfairly, even though he was crucified and buried, he has risen from the dead. And by being raised from the dead, we have hope. We have hope where we can stand and face these fears. Where we can face things in our life that are terrifying where we can face hardship and difficulty where we can face that are out of the face things that are out of our character we can face these problems we can face these hardships because Christ has been raised see that's not just what the bible proclaims but that's what the savior proclaims 
And that's what God proclaims when he says here, out of that cloud on top of that mountain in this terrifying scene, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Because the message that Christ has is that he has come. Come to give us life. Come to give us peace. Come to give us grace. He's come that we might have mercy and we might have relief from our fear. And what he calls on us to do is listen to him. I wonder this morning if you take that calling seriously. See, you look there in verse 7. And you don't see at the end of that sentence a question mark. God gives this as a direction. He gives this as a commandment for us. The one standing before Peter, James, and John. The one who had led them up onto the mountain and and made them a part of this terrifying scene. This one is the Son of God, and we are called upon above all else to listen to Him. I wonder if that is a reality of your life. That you have committed your heart and life to listening to Jesus. To listening to His instruction. To listening to His voice. To listening to His Word. Those of you this morning who claim the name of Christ, you need to understand this is something that God takes seriously in your call to listen to Him. But some of you here this morning don't know Christ. You've never trusted in Him. You've never followed after Him. You've never called on His name. You've never placed your trust in Him. You've never accepted this free gift that He gives when He says that I've been risen from the dead. Why? Why was He raised from the dead? So that you could have life. That death that He died on that cross was the one that you deserved to die. The one that you were destined for. The one that was the consequences of your sin and rebellion against God. And yet Christ took that death and He placed it upon Himself so that you could have life. And He calls on you to turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion against Him, and follow after His Son. So I wonder this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ... If you've never followed after Him, what is it this morning that keeps you from listening to His voice? God spoke out of heaven and gave us the direction, the command, listen to My Son. This morning, what's keeping you from that? What's preventing you from listening to Christ? I want to tell you that God has removed all the barriers. He's removed all of the excuses. None of them are sufficient. He calls on you this morning to listen to His Son.
He calls on you to abandon your sin and rebellion, abandon your running away from Him and run into His arms and listen to His Son. This morning, if you're running from God, if you're far from Him, would you turn and listen to the precious voice of Christ? The voice that offers life. The voice that offers forgiveness and hope and peace. Would you listen to Him? Will you bow your heads with me as we pray this morning? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you love us. God, we're thankful that you care for us. And God, we're thankful that you have given us the voice of your Son Christ and made it possible that we should listen to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for how much you love us and how much you care for us. And God, we pray this morning that for those here who do not know you, that they would call upon your name and that, God, you would give them hope. Be with us during this time. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. If you know Christ this morning, but you have neglected listening to his voice, that needs to change. That needs to change this morning. That's not something you need to change down the road, something you need to get around to. But if you know Christ or claim to know Christ, but do not listen to his voice, today is the day that that needs to change. But some of you are here and you don't know Christ. You've never followed after Him. His voice is calling you. It's called you through His Word this morning. It's called you through our songs. It's called you through our prayers. It's calling you. He calls you to come. Come to Him. Be forgiven. Come to Him and know life. If you don't know Christ this morning, I invite you to come. During this time while everyone else is singing, come and let me share with you how you can know Christ. Let me share with you how you can listen to his voice. Would you respond to God's word this morning as we sing?